this already this morning. So, so let's pray that it works because I'm not standing behind one. Good, Lance. Let's, uh, let's pray. God, thanks for this morning. Thanks that we can be here, that we can worship you through song, through giving. And now as we turn to your word, which we know what we're about to read is, is not man's opinion. These are your words written to us, the very truth that we might know how to live. And so God, as we study them together, as we consider their implications in our lives, would you just make clear to us the implications of the text this morning? God, thanks. Amen. So you can turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2. Uh, if you are visiting this morning, let me just give you a little uh, context as to where we've been. So we're actually in the middle right now of getting ready to unroll uh, a new discipleship plan, a new discipleship model of how we want to be serious about doing this. Is Jesus, in Matthew 28, after um, after his death and resurrection, he comes back and he, and he, he says, all authority has been given unto me, therefore go and make disciples. And we believe that that's not a command given only to 12 individuals who were there, but this is this is a command given to every single follower of Christ. And so we want to be serious about that. We want to consider how can we do that. And so this book of 1 Timothy, um, scholars often call it a mentoring manual between Paul and Timothy. Paul who wrote it to Timothy and to the church in Ephesus. And so we're using this as kind of our blueprint of what does it look like to disciple someone? What does it look like to come alongside them and help them through their journey and, and allow them to speak truth into our life and, and for us to grow in our faith together? And so in the coming weeks here, uh, not next week, but the week after that, our, our leadership team, the, those on the board in your bulletin, you have a list of all those people who are on the board. We're going to partner them very specifically. Uh, Shayla and I have been working on this for, for quite a long time already. We're going to be partnering them very specifically with people within the church to intentionally disciple. Because in chapter 3 of 1 Timothy, it's all about leaders and how leaders are going to model what we are calling everyone to do. And so then as 1 Timothy continues to go, we're going to open this up so that everyone, our hope anyway, is that every person that comes through these doors will say, yes, I see the validity, I see, I see the importance of connecting with one or two other people so that our faith can grow as we mutually encourage and love one another. And so my goal is that by the end of 1 Timothy, that every single person who calls Banff Park Church their home is in a, a, a ministry mentorship of sorts, because whether you know this or not, the Bible teaches that every single one of you are called into ministry. I get lucky. I get to be paid to do that. But everyone's called to do that. Everyone's called to minister to one another. And so that's the goal. That's what we're trying to do here as we go through this. So in chapter 1 of 1 Timothy, Paul writes uh, a personal letter to Timothy, but it's also written to be read uh, in the context of the local body in Ephesus. So it's, it's not only written for Timothy, but it is partially written directly to him, but also for the sake of the church. And Paul tells Timothy, there's, there's some teaching that's come into the church that's, that's not right, that's not in accordance with the teaching of what the gospel of Jesus is meant to be about. And, and he doesn't really elaborate too much on that. As we continue, it's some of these nuances about what the teaching is about kind of starts to come forward. But we don't know exactly what it's about. But what we do know is that it was starting to cause division. It was starting to take people's eyes off of the true gospel of Christ and onto very secondary and, and, and even beyond that, just, just issues that aren't really important. 
Now, there are some things that are central that we, uh, we'll say it this way, is it's a hill that we're going to die on. One of those things that we're going to talk about a little bit here as we go through Timothy is, is things like that Jesus is the only way for us to find salvation. That's a hill we're going to die on. That's something that is just clear in Scripture and that we think is central. But there's lots of other things in Scripture that, that we can agree to disagree as Christians and still enjoy fellowship together. There, there are ideas, um, and in the coming weeks, specifically next week, we're going to look at this, uh, this idea of complementarianism. And I believe that that's the biblical model, but I have pastor friends who, who teach different things, and yet I respect them and I think they're godly men yet we disagree on some things. And so we're going to start to talk about that next week and, and show that there are things that need to be central that we cannot compromise on, and there's other things where there's there's area where we can agree to disagree. And Paul's telling Timothy right here, this teaching, this the, these people that have brought in this divisive teaching, this, this is a central issue. It needs to be dealt with, and it needs to be dealt with now because of the potential consequences that come through it. Now, in verse 5 of chapter 1, Timothy is told by Paul that love needs to be the very center of everything. So when we need to correct things, when we need to come alongside people who are teaching wrong things, the goal is about love. The goal is about restoration. The, the goal is about restoring everyone into the community of the church together. That's always the goal. And so he calls them to that over and over. And then in verses 12 to 17, Kind of in the middle, uh, Paul takes this kind of detour and he talks about how nobody is beyond hope. Nobody is beyond salvation because Christ died for everyone. And Paul uses kind of his own life as that example. And he does this several times through Scripture in various letters that he writes. And he says in, in 1 Timothy, he says, I was the chief or I was the foremost of sinners. He viewed himself in this context that if anybody was beyond saving, it should have been him. But he wasn't. Because Christ's blood covers all of us. And so we need to be reminded of that. And, and he's saying, Timothy, as you have to, um, as you're pastoring this church in Ephesus, and as you're teaching and as you're equipping, realize that you will have to discipline and you will have to correct. But nobody, no matter how divisive, no matter how bad the teaching is, nobody should be treated that they're too far from salvation, but that God can restore them to it. So that brings us to chapter 2. That's kind of the context as to what we've gotten here. Now let me just say this. This week and next week, so chapter 2, we're going to do the first seven verses today and the rest of it next week. This section, you could title it, this is the way that Paul is asking Timothy, this is the way the church as a corporate body, this is how it should operate. This is the way God's designed it. This is the way it's intended to be um, how it's intended to work effectively so that we can accomplish the purposes that we've been called. And so what is the purpose of the church? Well, this is easy for me to say uh, because I'm a pastor, but I believe that the corporate body of Christ is pivotal in our understanding and in our growth as Christians. Through the New Testament, it becomes very, very clear that God has an intent that he's going to gather his followers to uh, groups, to local bodies to work for purpose and mission to declare the good news of Christ and to encourage and to build one another up so that we can send and equip each other off for mission. So I think the church is central to the message of the gospel. I think this is the way God intends to use people for his good. Not that, not that we can't be used individually. Certainly we can. 
but it always seems to flow out of the context of the local body. So that's, I'm just throwing the cards on the table. That is what I think this text, as we go through it, needs to be central in our minds. So these first seven verses are about something we are all very familiar with. Some of you may have a little heading above chapter 2. What does it say? Okay, instructions on worship. Anybody else have anything different? Call to prayer. So worship and prayer. These are two central things that we're going to look at. Now prayer is something we all know. We all understand what it's about. Um, show of hands, how many think you have an awesome prayer life? Maybe don't do that. Um, I think this is an area that all of us look at and go, man, I wish, like, I wish I understood prayer more. I wish I was um, more effective in my prayer. I wish I, maybe we've said this, maybe, I just, I wish I simply prayed more. I remember when I was in Bible college, there was a man uh, named Mr. Peeler. And Mr. Peeler was the president of Miller Bible College for 50 years. Uh, and then as he retired, he stayed on campus, and campus is like when the school isn't there for the summer, there's like 14 people in the town, like it's very, very small. And he stayed there, and he would memorize every single person that was coming to school for the next year, all 120, 130 of them, get their pictures, figure out where they were from, and he would come and shake your hand and talk to you, and, and you were like, who are you, and how do you know so much about me? And then if you ever went to the library, which unfortunately I never really did the first two years, uh, Mr. Peeler would be there every morning, and he would be pulling out a new commentary, and he would be studying, and then he would close the commentary, and then he would just sit there in this little cubicle praying. And Mr. Peeler was, I think he was 96 when he, when he passed away, but he would pray every single day in this little cubicle to the point that plenty of people thought, like, maybe he's gone. Like, he's still sitting there, and, and nobody's seen him move, and everyone was always a little bit nervous that Mr. Peeler passed away while praying in the library. And we all kind of thought that would be just the most, the most fitting thing ever. But man, he was someone who prayed and prayed intently and studied intently. And, and so in my mind, I'm thinking, like, that's, that's the goal. That's what, I, that's what I want to be like. Well, Paul's going to teach us what prayer ought to look like. So let's read verses 2 to 7. I'm reading from the ESV. It says this. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. For kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, there is one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and in truth. So, instructions in worship or, or a call to prayer, uh, whatever the heading might be, is Paul's now taking this, this stretch of this text and the next text, and he's saying this is what the church ought to look like. This is what God's intent is for us. First of all, pray. First of all, pray. This is... Like, this could be your life motto. This could be something you could write down everywhere where you're ever going to look because this might be one of the more important things that you remember. First of all, pray. See, there's, in my experience, there's kind of two main groups of people. Those who pray and those who do. The 
prayers and the doers. And the, and the prayers don't understand why the doers don't pray, and the doers don't understand why the prayers don't do. And you have this, like, this battle that exists in there. Well, I'm going to confess I'm more of a doer than a prayer, and I am learning more and more and more the urgency, the necessity of me slowing down and stop doing and actually going to God in prayer first. First, pray. I'm far more apt to do the... Uh, the, the old bumper sticker that I hate, I've mentioned this lots of times, is, is the Jesus is my co-pilot bumper sticker. It's like that's the exact opposite analogy. Actually, Jesus is supposed to be the pilot. He's not supposed to be the co-pilot. You can ignore the co-pilot. And men, have you ever ignored your co-pilot? You're supposed to turn here. Yeah, yeah, I know the better way. Right? We're really bad at that. Is If Jesus is just my co-pilot, then he's just the, the voice they're suggesting. Here's what you should do. But no, we should give up and we should say, okay, God, you, you, you go ahead. You drive the car. But the problem is, is that uh, many of us, and I, I'm not going to say who's who here, but for me, I know when I read this is, is I'm a, I like to do. And then I go, oh, oh God, is this, is this what you want from me? And sometimes I forget, maybe I need to sit down. Maybe I need to slow down. And maybe I just need to simply have a conversation with God for a little while, long before I choose what I'm going to do. This last uh, couple of weeks, I've been kind of battling some, some discouragement, some frustration, and, and I know that the majority of that is coming simply because we're, we're unrolling this new discipleship model. This is going to be something that will drastically impact each of our lives, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to cause us to grow, and of course Satan's going to fight that. Of course he doesn't want that to succeed. And so, of course, I know that I'm under more oppression and, and frustration and all these things, and yet did I spend enough time in prayer and just asking that God would just give me peace and comfort and help me to trust in him and to, and to stay the course and to not be discouraged? probably didn't do that nearly enough. In fact, I probably came home sometimes, and I probably inadvertently was short with my family when I probably could have settled that in my office by just spending some time with God. I know how important prayer is, and I hope that you know how important prayer is, and yet sometimes it can be the last thing we do because the first thing we want to do is act. This last week at our board meeting, we talked about uh, this men's ministry that we've been wanting to get going for a long time, and, and so we talked about it, and I was just like, okay, we're just going to do it. And then I just made this plan, and I sent this big email. Here's what's going to happen. And then all the guys responded and said, that doesn't work, Greg. Oh, Maybe I should slow down and ask God first. It, it, I have to act like I actually believe that God knows best. God knows better than me. So first of all, pray. And, and Paul says it this way. He urges them to pray. This, it's, it's more than just like, I, I suggest that you should. He's like, he's urging, he's pleading with them. This is central to your faith and to your maturity, to your growth. You need to develop a deeper prayer. Like you need to spend more time with God in prayer. And that is true of all of us, no matter where on the journey and no matter what level of maturity we have, is we need to learn this more. What kind of prayer? Supplications, intercessions, thanksgivings, all kinds of different ones. But, but just before we get into this, is all commentators kind of start this section with this belief that the, the issue that was at hand here was this kind of elitist thinking. That there was a group of people that thought they were more important, 
or that God was only going to work in them, and so that's where all the focus went to. Man, we're guilty of this all the time in life. We say that, you know, popularity is this thing that only happens in school, but that's not true. We look at people and go, well, that person has more influence, so I'm going to spend a little bit more time there. That, person, uh, that person's famous, so I'm, I'm going to turn into a complete goof when I'm around them because I don't even know how to talk to them. We do all kinds of weird things because we elevate certain people to certain levels and, and then, oh, these other people, that's not as important or they're not as important. And Paul's trying to say to Timothy, no, 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 this is not the case. You can't allow this elitist mindset to come in. So he says, pray for who? Verse 1, right at the end, what does it say? Somebody say it. It's right there. All people. So let's clarify this first. Does that mean, so you, let's say you have your little routine, and, and right before you go to bed, you sit down and, and you pray for, for your, your prayer time. Does that mean literally you're supposed to name every single person that you possibly can think of in that moment? I don't think that's the point. I think if, if that's the case, it gets a little bit pharisaical. Like, what if I forget somebody? If I forget somebody, they're not blessed. So I've got I to gotta get everyone, and, and, then, and then we get this mindset that's just wrong. I think what Paul's saying here is for all types of people. In other words, don't just pray for those you love. It's easier to pray for those we love, those that we care about. It's easy to pray for our spouses and our kids and our extended families. But what, about, what about your enemies? What about those who hate you? Well, Jesus said, right, pray for your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Why should we pray for them? I think we should pray for them so that we learn to love them. I think that's the call in 1 Timothy. The aim of our charge is this, love. How do we love people? Well, if we start to connect with them and pray for them more, God will change our heart towards them. If we pray for people, God will start to change our hearts towards them. So for who? For, for kings, for all who are in high positions, for, for any and everybody that has any role here to play on earth, which is everyone. And I think it's written in there again for us, because this is so our culture, is I'm really, really good at opening an article, reading it, and going, man, our government's brutal. I'm really good at that. I'm not really good at going... God, would you give them wisdom? Here's what I don't understand. Romans makes it clear to us that God appoints, that the only reason our government is in place is because God has appointed that to happen. That doesn't make sense to me a lot of times, and I can't really work that out in my own brain, but if God has called them to it for whatever his reasons are and his purposes are, then I have to recognize that my role is to pray and to not complain. Now, does that mean we can't? fight for things to change? Not at all, but we can, we can disagree respectfully. We talked about this when we studied through First uh, Peter together, but here we are, to call, we are called to pray for kings and all who are in high positions. So when the news opens up, instead of getting frustrated and indignant and, and disappointed, but to go, God, would you give them wisdom? Because you have put them in that place right now. So would you give them wisdom to do well and to rule well? My... Uh, my brother is in the Canadian Forces, and he's stationed uh, in Kuwait right now. And he said, uh, he wrote an email to my parents and, and the rest of us. Uh, the Prime Minister was on base. And the military and the Prime Minister don't, like, there's, there's some conflict there. And so he said he came in, and uh, my brother has never been one for many words. But he said he came in, and the Prime Minister came up, and he, he looked at every single person who was serving, and he shook their hands. 
And my brother wrote in this just this little short email, and he said, I thought that was a big deal that he came and shook our hands. And I realized in that moment, my brother, who is more frustrated with our government than I will ever be, respected his prime minister probably more than I did. And I was convicted in that moment. Is that we are to pray for all people. Why? That we may lead a peaceful and a quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. That's, that's hard. When I read that uh, again, and this is not the only time in 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul talks about this as well, and he unpacks it actually a little bit more there. And he basically says it this way, is that if we lead this kind of a life that is, that is not hostile, but is, but is peaceful and quiet, that we will win the respect of others. And when we, when we win the respect of others, we elevate Christ because they look at us and they go, there's something to that. All of us, this is true of all of us. Even if we disagree with people, if they live authentically, we will respect them more. Even if we disagree. But if they live in a way where they say one thing and do another, respect just naturally goes down and, and we listen to those people less. And we are called as people of, of God, as his bride, as his church, we are called to represent him well, and so that doesn't mean that we have to be perfect. That means we have to be real, authentic, and vulnerable, and admit when we do things wrong, admit when we have said something or done something that is incorrect, and, and repent of those things, and ask forgiveness, and humble ourselves to the place of saying we don't have it all together. We just need to live authentically and show that we represent Christ. And yes, the world will disagree with us, but the more authentically we can live, hopefully the more they'll respect us and they'll see it and they'll go, man, I might not agree with you, but there's something to that. And then we allow the Holy Spirit to be at work in their life. Now there's something that's really interesting here as the text continues on. We're to pray for all people in verse 1 because it's God's desire that who be saved in verse 4. All people to be saved. Verse 6, Jesus gave himself as a ransom for who? Come on. Oh, there we go. And then in, in verse 7, it says that Paul was appointed to the Gentiles, which is another way of saying not only the Jewish people, but all nations. But all. This, this text is completely inclusive of the reality for us to remember that God loves everybody because he's created them and he desperately cares for them and he desperately wants them to be adopted into his family and we ought to as the bride as the church as those who are commissioned to go and make disciples it's our role to show people that god is a god who loves now he's a god that corrects he's a god that dis disciplines as we talked about last week or two weeks ago excuse me but we need to understand that at the very heart of God, well, First John, John tells us this way, is we love because he first loved because God is love. It's at the very center. God is not this God who stands up there in heaven looking down at us, waiting for us to screw up so we can punish us. He's a father who loves us so desperately that in the, in the story of the prodigal son, 
Christ. He is running back to us the second that we're willing to repent. Because he loves us so much. This is the, the crucial aspect of it. So again, instructions for worship or a call to pray. Um, the headings for this. Commentator John Stott wrote this, and I thought this was really, really good. He says, for the church is essentially a worshiping, praying community. It is often said that the church's priority task is evangelism, but that is not really so. Worship takes precedence over evangelism, partly because love for God is the first commandment and love for the neighbor is the second, partly because long after the church's uh, evangelistic task has been completed, God's people will continue to worship him eternally, and partly because evangelism is itself an aspect of worship, a priestly service in which converts become an offering acceptable to God. The importance of the local church cannot be overstated. The more we love Christ, the more we fall in love with Christ, the more we recognize his love for us and that changes how we live, the more effective we will live as, as disciples and as evangelists. But if we think, man, I have to do this, 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 and this, and we forsake meeting together as, as the issue was in Hebrews, or we forsake prayer, we're only going to be mildly effective compared to what we could be if we would simply listen to what God is calling us to do. One of my friends in, in Winnipeg once explained it this way. He said kind of how he viewed the church was that we would gather together and equip and charge us and get us excited and prepared so that we could go out and face the hostile world that we were going to face for that week. And then we would be at the very end. We have nothing left and we come back together so that we could be built up again. We need each other. This is how we have been created. This is God's desire for the church. Now, there's two other statements here that I want to focus on because I think they, they very clearly deal with very core issues in Christianity that we cannot overlook. First thing is in verse 4. God desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. You've heard me say that lots. That's a verse that I quote often. But this verse has the potential to be misunderstood and to be misconstrued and, and theologically taken to a place that is not meant to say here. There's a battle that goes on right from the beginning of, of the early church and through theologians' journeys of figuring this out, is, is how can God be completely sovereign and yet allow us free will at the same time? Like, how does that work? is if God's totally sovereign, then whatever God plans, he gets. But if people have free will, then they're allowed to disobey God. So then how can God be sovereign then? And so people have argued and wrestled over this for so long. But what I actually think here is I think this is really um, two sides of the same coin, more so than things that contradict each other. How can God be loving and yet holy at the same time? To us, those are, those are mutually exclusive, but I don't think they are. D.A. Carson points out in his study through this passage uh, that he says, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, this idea of God's will or God's desires is used in various ways. Sometimes it talks about his perfect will or his decree. That simply means that whatever God wills happens. Other times it's God's command. And we don't have to read much scripture to realize that people disobey God's commands. And I'll add, a lot. Other times it speaks of God's stance. 
the conclusion of this article, he, or of, of this commentary section, he says this: "The God who cries, I take no pleasure in death of any, in the death of anyone. Repent and live." From Ezekiel 18, is also the one whom it is said that he wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. When we read about God's will in Scripture, as D. A. Carson points out, sometimes it's it's referencing different aspects of that. And the hard part is that's up to us as the reader to interpret that part correctly. And the only way we can interpret it correctly is if we actually read it in the context that it's written for us. And so in 1 Timothy, when you read through the entire book and then you recognize what, what is Paul saying about God's will, it's God's desires. See, God does have a perfect will. That which he has ordained will happen. But the scriptures also talk about this idea of his permissive will, his, his desires, the things he wants, but he has allowed us to decide how we're going to live, what we're going to do, whether we'll obey God or whether we'll disobey God. That part is up to us. And here, God's desire is that every single one who has been created would call on him for repentance and would turn to him and come to him for salvation. That's God's desire. That's what God wants. When God created you and God created me, he didn't create us with this, with this popularity spectrum and go, well, some of these people I want and some I don't. He created everybody equally. And he loves everybody desperately. In fact, I'd argue he loves us too much to make us do anything. But he allows us, will you choose to be obedient and follow after me? So if somebody comes and says, well, you know what? There's this universalistic idea that, that all will be saved, that Paul's teaching that everyone will come because it says that God's desires that all will be saved. So that means it happens. Is we're reading into the text exactly the opposite thing which Paul's trying to point out to us. Is what Paul's trying to point out to us is that God's love for you has no, no bounds. His love for you is unlimiting. In fact, if we die in our sins, refusing to repent it brings God no pleasure to send that person to hell. He doesn't enjoy that. It, it grieves him. God's love does not end simply because we have died. God's love continues, and that's the hard part of understanding what love truly actually looks like. And that's why for us to understand love, we have to understand God, because God is love. He's the author of it, not us. So when people come and they say to us something like, well, you know, God says he wants all people to be saved, we go, well, wait, let's read what the text actually says. Let's read it in context. Let's understand it. Then verse 5, this is another crucial, crucial component of our faith. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. There is one mediator. Jesus says it very simply in, in John 14, right? I am the way, the truth, and the life. How does it go? No one comes to Father but through me. Jesus makes an exclusive statement. There's one way to eternity, and it goes through him. Now, maybe we don't like that. Maybe we well, that's not fair. There should be other multiple options. We can do that all day we want, but the reality is, is God created God's gifts to choose. And this is how he's done it. 
So there's no other opportunity. There's no other mediators. There's no other way. And so that means now that as, as a Christian, that those of us who, who call in the name of Christ and, and we're part of this local body, this Banff Park Church, is our role is to show and to declare the world that there is but one way for salvation through the person of Jesus Christ. And so when people say, or they want to disagree and argue and say, well, well what about like the priest in the Old Testament sacrificial system or, or today in the Catholic uh, idea of, of confession and some of those things is we go, no, no, it's very clear. There's one mediator between God and man, only Jesus. He gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. There is only one person equipped for this role of being our mediator. Jesus Christ, that's it. Nobody else. I don't go to somebody else to confess my sins to them because they have no authority to forgive those sins on my behalf. Christ has authority to forgive those sins. In fact, he said it in Matthew 28, all authority has been given to me. Everything is under his dominion. Everything. And so we go to him to find salvation. We don't go to other Great writers and great theologians, they may offer great insight, they may help us in our faith, but they don't bring us salvation and they don't offer us forgiveness. So the second that we start to study the word together, and if, and if we were to come together and I were to preach something that is not about Jesus, then we've missed the mark and we've missed the point. The, the Bible is not a self-help manual for improving how you can live or becoming a better version of you. The Bible is, here's Christ. Here's salvation. Here's how we might understand God and his love for us through Jesus Christ. Commentator Griffin wrote it this way. It's a beautiful sentence. He says this. As a mediator, Christ removed the separation caused by sin and reconciled humankind with God. As the God-man, Christ is uniquely qualified to serve as a go-between who can bring sinful people into God's family. Only Christ can do that. And Paul makes this clear, reminding both Timothy and also the church as a whole, and now to us, is there is one mediator. There is one way. And this is through Christ. So, from a very practical standpoint, this is not giving us a, a strategy or, or a structure of, here's how to pray effectively. Do this and you'll be a better prayer. This is what I've learned. There's only one way to become a more effective prayer, and that's what? Trial and error. The more you pray, the more you'll grow. There's not one formula, one strategy, one little sheet where you can go, okay, if I pray this way and then this way, so thanksgivings and, and then supplications and then intercessions, like just pray. What this text is trying to tell us is, is there's kind of three areas. First, we pray for who? For all people. For everyone. Why do we pray? Well, we pray because the, the goal is that they would come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. So, yes, we should pray for healing and we should pray for those who are going through crisis and difficulty and family turmoil and all those things. But when we pray for those things, we should either be reminded that what they need most is not physical healing, but spiritual healing. Or that if they are saved already, that we should praise God that they have entered into relationship with Christ. That should be the focus of our prayer. Everything else 
flows from that. And then thirdly, as we pray, we can have the confidence that Christ's death has provided the ransom for sin, and he and he alone is sufficient, and he can save anyone who turns to him. So when we come to God in prayer, if we remember those three things, if we prayed with that kind of a mindset of, God, would you help me to love people? So would I just, just let me pray for them. Pray for those who hurt you and, and who offend you and those that you just can't stand so that God would soften your heart. Would we pray that all would come to a knowledge of saving faith because that's what God's desire in the first place is anyway, so would we pray for that? And then would we be reminded that it's only in Christ that salvation can be found? And would we pray that people would understand that, that there's no other name under which men may be saved? but only Jesus Christ. So as we go from this place, as you go home, as you go back to work, as, as we go to our regular routines, all I want to simply challenge you with this is would you just spend a little bit more time in prayer tomorrow than you did today? The next day, would you just be a little bit more intentional than you were the day before? I'm not talking about adding five minutes to every day until you're up to three hours and you reach this level of spiritual guru. Like, that's not the point. But the point is, are we going to spend intentional time in communion with God so that God shapes our heart more into what his heart is? You can only do that if we're intentional. So let's become a people that do that. So let me state right from the get-go, and I said this in, in my report for our board meeting this week, is this starts with our leadership, and this starts with me, and this is something I have not modeled enough. And so I'm going to do this. And I hope and I pray that we're willing to do this as a body. So let's model it right now. Let's pray. God, as we consider this text and what it's saying to us, God, would you let love be the motivator behind all of our prayer? Would you develop in us a care, a deep care and concern, not just for those that are easy to love, but those who are hard to love? Would we pray for all types of people? God, we thank you for our families that you have blessed us with, that you have given us, that we get to live life with. What a privilege and what a blessing that is. God, for those who we find it difficult to love, perhaps in our workplace or in our extended families, God, would you give us compassion towards them? Would, would you give us empathy towards their lives and what they have gone through? God, for those who are in positions of authority in government, would you help us to give a care and a concern, not frustration and anger? God, for those that are persecuting your church, would you give us a proper understanding of how much you love them and want them to turn to you? God, we pray for salvation for all mankind. That people would come to know you because as difficult as our lives may be, as the spiritual problem is far more difficult than the physical or the emotional problem. 
Would you gather people together to submit to you, to Jesus Christ? That they would see their need of him and that they would come and join the body of Christ. That they would come to salvation. And God, we thank you that there is nobody who is too far. Nobody who has sinned too much. Nobody whose life cannot be forgiven. But that Jesus Christ's sacrifice on the cross was fully sufficient. God, would we realize that and would we recognize that that means that anybody that we talk to, anybody that we encounter, that, that they have opportunity to come to faith. Would we declare that? God, as we go home from here, would you challenge our own hearts and our own minds to consider the importance of praying for one another? God, would we simply practice by praying? And would we become intentional in our prayer life so that we can grow in our faith and we can become effective the way that you have called us to be? God, thank you for every single person who is part of Banff Park Church, whether a member, whether a regular attender, whether somebody that shows up on a random Sunday morning. God, thank you that we get to worship you together as one body. Thank you that you are using this church in this community to declare your goodness and your love. God, would we gather together as a corporate local body desiring to go and make disciples. And would we, would we help each other in that process so that we can work together, so that this is not just an isolated individual thing, but that we can do this as a family. God, thank you so much for calling us to this place this morning. You are good. You are worthy of all praise, and so we just want to lift you high. God, we love you, and we thank you that you are a God who loves. Go with us today now. Thank you for this time. Amen. Next, just through uh, the curtain or around the back here, and there'll just be a time of fellowship, and there's no rush to get out of here. And as always, there's an evening service tonight at 7 o'clock.